nicknames. I don't know if you have a nickname or if your family gives nicknames to one another, but my family does, especially on my mom's side. I have an aunt whom I've known all my life as Aunt Pudge or Pudgy. Now, I wouldn't advise you just walking up to someone and calling them Pudgy. In fact, everybody else, she works for the government, but everybody else calls her Karen, and she's all business. But not one time have I ever referred to her as Karen in her life. She's always been my Aunt Pudgy. Now, we give nicknames often because we love family, we love friends. But, you know, folks have nicknames even in leadership. I think about the nicknames that have been given to presidents or political leaders. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is often referred to in history as Honest Abe. And the reason for that nickname was because he was so honest. It said that when he was a young man in Illinois, he was working as a store clerk, uh, he mistakenly took six cents too much from a customer. And so one evening after the store closed, uh, he walked two or three miles just to return those few pennies to that particular customer because of honesty. He's honest Abe. If you were to go back further in history, uh, maybe someone else who was given a, a nickname not because of honesty but because of dishonesty would be King Henry VIII who was referred to as Old Copper Nose. And someone says, why in the world was he called Copper Nose? Well, it was because he issued cheap currency. It was discovered that his silver coins that were introduced were mostly made of copper. And the longer that those coins were in circulation, Henry's nose on the faces of those coins wore down, revealing the cheaper metal underneath, thereby earning him that nickname, Old Copper Nose. Uh, you think about men and women in Scripture, maybe even how their name is synonymous with some character trait. There are some from Scripture that church history has given a nickname. I think about the disciple Thomas. Thomas, his nickname throughout history is Doubting Thomas. And that's due to the fact that he refused to believe the message of the resurrection unless he placed his finger in the nail prints in Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet. Doubting Thomas. Now, here's the thing. Thomas is not the only disciple who wrestled with doubt. And I think if we were honest, all of us at various points in our lives have wrestled with doubt. We've been like doubting Thomas perhaps more than we would want to admit. And I'm probably accurate in saying that all of us at some point or another in our Christian experience, we've wrestled with this issue of doubt. Maybe not so much doubting the evidence for the claims of the gospel, but at times we've doubted perhaps our experience of the gospel. And I would not be far off in saying that many of us in this room, maybe even right now, are weighed down with uncertainty and doubt in our walk with God. And if that's you, what you need more than anything else is assurance. Assurance. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn with me this morning to the second chapter of 1 John. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6. Now we're in a study through 1 John. 
a little letter that's so helpful for us when it comes to possessing assurance in the Christian life. Assurance in the face of doubt. Assurance of God's love. Assurance when it comes to being forgiven of sin. Assurance that we possess true saving faith. Every Christian needs to live with the assurance of his salvation because assurance of salvation, this is the key to joy in your life. And so John writes to encourage us in the truth that we can know for sure that we're saved. Now some people say that that's an impossibility. Assurance of salvation, this is elusive. This is an impossibility. And often they come to that conclusion because of their own experience with sin and failure in the Christian life. And I know that Christians throughout the history of the church have had differing views on issues related to salvation and eternal security and whether or not a person can lose their salvation. Some who have argued that a Christian can lose his salvation have made this point that security is really a matter, it's all a matter of my performance. I'm saved by grace, but maintaining my salvation, well, that's up to me. On the other hand, others have said that salvation is all of God, and there's no emphasis at all on a person's performance. And so that often has given rise. Some folks think, well, I can live any way that I want to live. And so you have these various misunderstandings that people fall victim to, this idea that, yes, salvation is a gift from God, but it's up to me to maintain it lest I lose it, or this other misunderstanding, yes, salvation is a gift from God, then ultimately it really doesn't matter what I do in life or how I live my life. As long as I've prayed a prayer, then things are good between me and God, and now I'm free to live however I please. Now, this is why the message of 1 John is so very important. Because the Apostle John is going to speak to issues of assurance in the believer's life. Keep in mind the fact that he's writing 1 John to believers. That's different from the Gospel of John. He writes the Gospel of John to unbelievers. And he tells us toward the end of his Gospel account that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he wants unbelievers to come to know Jesus Christ uh, in a very personal way. That's the message of his gospel. First John is written to those who are professing believers, and he tells us that the purpose behind his writing, First John, ultimately is that those who believe, are you living with assurance that you're saved? Are you confident in that belief? Do you know beyond the shadow of all doubt that you are saved. And so John calls upon believers to continue in the faith, to not deviate from the simple truth of the gospel that they had been taught. And ultimately, his purpose is summed up in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Now, let me ask you this question as a Christian. Aren't you glad that you can know for sure that you have eternal life? If that's something you're wondering about, if you're not sure whether or not you know you have eternal life, then you need to pay very close and careful attention to what the Apostle John is going to say in these verses. Now, let's read beginning with verse number 3, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. 
The Bible says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the obedience test. The obedience test. I think it was Robert Law in a little book that he wrote back in the 1800s who first said that the Apostle John writes, and in his book, he he really gives believers a series of tests that they can apply to their life to examine whether or not they are in the faith. What are those tests? Well, the first test that Robert Law mentioned was the doctrinal test. What is it that you believe about Jesus Christ? You can know that you're saved if you've confessed your sin to Jesus Christ and you believe that he is God in human flesh. John is crystal clear in this assertion in his little book. I can know that I'm saved if I've confessed my sin to Jesus and I believe that he's the son of God. And then there's the social test. Uh, John says, I can know that I'm saved if I have a love in my heart for my brothers and sisters in the faith. It's the social test. Well, this particular passage, uh, Robert Law says, is the obedience test or the ethical test. I can know that I'm saved if I'm obeying the commands of Jesus Christ from the heart out of a life that's been changed. And so John tells us that obedience to Christ's commands uh, to love one another the way that God loves us, obedience to the Lord and his word, this is the ultimate proof that we've come to know God. And that's an interesting thing. What is the evidence that a group of believers truly possess saving knowledge of God? It's not so much their ingenuity and their clever abilities as a collective body of believers, but it's the supernatural love that's been poured out in their hearts for one another. It's the miraculous life change that's happened uh, simply by God's grace through believing the gospel message of Jesus. So the obedience test, this is what John is dealing with in these verses, and he says that really obedience, it's something that's essential for our assurance Uh, It's evidence that we've been redeemed. And John says it's ultimately expressed through abiding in Christ. So notice, first of all, how John says that obedience is essential for assurance. He says there in verse 3, By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now keep in mind that John has already shown us so very clearly that as we go forward in our walk with God, even if we stumble and we fall into sin, that doesn't make our case hopeless. Because keep in mind what he's already said in just the first two verses here in chapter 2. He said in verse 1 that he's writing to his little children so that they may not sin. But if anyone does sin... John wants them to know that they've got an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ the righteous. And so Christ's advocacy means that his wounds plead my case. 
His death on the cross satisfied the demands of the law. He's the propitiation for our sins. And John says, not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So this is the fundamental doctrine as far as salvation is concerned. So he's saying, I'm writing these things to you, verse 1, that you may not sin. He's not saying that Christians are going to live a life of sinless perfection. That's not what he's saying. This is not advocating perfectionism. Uh, Neither is it advocating um, this this idea of, here's a, a word, antinomianism which means against law, which means I don't have to live with the law of God in mind whatsoever. I can live as I want to live. Jesus died in my place. His death satisfied the demands of God's law. I'm no longer under law but under grace. So that means I can live however I want to live, right? Wrong. We are under grace and not under law. But listen to this. Uh, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's not a you-get-to-sin-free card. You understand? This is not a a, a smorgasbord invitation for you to live your life and indulge in sin because Jesus has paid the bill. That's not what John is saying. He's not advocating perfectionism. Neither is he advocating antinomianism. Verse 2, Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean that he's advocating universalism. That doesn't simply mean that automatically everybody in the world is saved because Jesus is the sufficient propitiation for sin. Because we know elsewhere what the scripture says, salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, so so John's dealt with the doctrinal there in verses 1 and 2, or the indicative This is indicative language, what Christ has done, what God has accomplished for us in Christ. But now in verse 3, he's moving from the indicative language to imperative language. You know what imperatives are, don't you? Imperatives are commands. But notice the order. Notice that the imperatives follow the indicatives. And that's true in the Christian life. The commands of Christ always follow the cross of Christ. And so I'm not saved by my performance. No, I'm saved by grace through faith. I've been to the cross and I've been to the empty tomb and Jesus has forgiven me and he saved me. Salvation is by grace through faith. And yet, what does that faith involve? What does that faith look like practically as it's lived out in my life as a believer? John says that it's going to be an obedient faith. And that's what he's saying here in these verses. So what you need to do, you need to take a pen and you really need to circle the number of times that the word no is used in these five chapters in 1 John. The word shows up 37 times in five chapters. It's one of John's favorite words. And at least four of those usages, the word is found in these few verses here. For instance, verse 3 says, by this we know that we've come to know him. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him. Verse 5, by this we may know that we are in him. So John wants us to know that we know God. He's dealing with this issue of the believer's assurance. 
There are some things in life that we ought to know and be sure of. All of us would agree that we want to be certain of some things as we live out our days. And yet, we also admit that there are a lot of things that we can't really be certain of. Things that we're uncertain of. uh, Fear and uncertainty. Oftentimes, these work hand in hand. Worry then sets in and chokes the life out of you. We're uncertain about our livelihood at times, and so then we begin to worry about how we're going to provide for our family. We want to be sure that we've got steady income, right? Often we're uncertain about our health, and for that reason, we then begin to worry if we get sick. Maybe we're uncertain about the future, and so we worry about what tomorrow might bring. But John is saying that this issue of your salvation, this is not something that should ever be reduced to the realm of uncertainty. God wants you as a believer to know some things. And not only does he want you to know some things, but he wants you to know that you know some things. He wants you to live in the confidence of who and what you know. God wants you to live in the assurance that you know him. And so I would ask you this question, do you know God? Because that right there is the single most important question that you will ever answer in life. Now, I'm not asking you, do you know about God? Because there are plenty of people who know things about God, but they don't know God. You say, what do you mean? Well, you can know some things about Jesus. You can know that he was born in Bethlehem. You can know that he was born of a virgin. Uh, You can know that he worked miracles. You can know that he walked on water, that he died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead. You can know facts about the Lord, but knowing facts about the Lord intellectually is different than you knowing the Lord personally and intimately through a relationship. So do you know him? And then if you know him, do you know for sure that you know him? And that's the second most important question that you will answer. And really, this is the key to living the life, the Christian life with joy and confidence. John says here in verse three that there are some things that you ought to know. And there are at least three of these there in verse three. You may want to jot these down. Uh, First, John says that we know it's possible to know God. He says as much in the verse. You can know God. And the Bible is clear in its assertion that God can be known because he's revealed himself to us. Now, this is different than what so many throughout the Greek world of John's day believed. Many throughout the Greek-speaking world, that first century world, they thought that God could be known through human reasoning. And this goes back to Greek philosophy and Greek philosophers like Plato who lived four or five hundred years before the events of the New Testament. But basically, throughout the Greek, the Greco-Roman world, this Platonic system of thought attempted to try to know God by means of intellect. And it almost reduced God down to nothing more than just a mathematical formula. And so you had all of these philosophers and all of these folks who were proud of their intellect and their knowledge, and they could tell you all kinds of facts about this and facts about that, but it really didn't compute to righteous moral living in their life. And then when that didn't satisfy, eventually throughout the Greek-speaking world, you had another group of folks who came along and said, no, you know, the divine mind ultimately is known by means of experience. God can be known not by means of intellect, but by means of your experience. 
And so they sought all kinds of thrills and emotional highs and euphoric experiences. And this is how the divine mind is known. And yet that didn't satisfy. And so the gospel says that it's not, we don't know God by means of just my sheer intellect or my sheer willpower or through emotional experience. God can be known because God has chosen to make himself known. And you come to know God because God has revealed himself. And had God not revealed himself, we'd still be in the dark. And so the gospel then runs counter to all these other ideas. Can we know God? Are there things intellectually we can know about God? Absolutely. Are there experiences that we have and we come to know God by personal experience? Absolutely. And yet knowing God in the inner man is a matter, however, of spiritual knowledge by which you've been brought from death to life. And that's something that God does for you in Jesus Christ. And so a Christian, in the true sense of the word, is someone who's been made alive. And what is salvation? It's knowledge of God. It's knowing God personally and intimately. And you can know for sure that you know him. So I can know God, and then the second thing here in this verse John says is that I can know for sure that I know God. I can know it for sure. That means I can have confidence and I can live with assurance. That word know there, John uses that word know at least a couple of different times in verse 3. The first usage of the term is a present tense verb, which means that we are continually being able to know. The idea is it's a progressive knowledge of God that's gained by experience. How many of you, you've been saved a long time. How many of you would say, you know what? I know God a whole lot better now than I did when I first got saved. And I'm still growing in my knowledge of God. By the way, how many of you can say that you've been married a long time to your spouse, your husband, your wife? Listen, I loved Anita when we got married Our next anniversary will be 19 years, but I love her more now, and I know her better now than I did 20 years ago when we first got together. Same thing ought to be true in your life spiritually. You remember the song? We used to sing it, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. It's this idea of just this progressive sense of knowledge. Knowledge grows as experience and then the second usage of the word there in verse 3 it's perfect tense and that simply means we've come to know God in a complete way a genuine way so in other words it's not just reference to facts we know about God that he's revealed about himself but it involves what we've come to know about him as well as a personal relationship with him that begins with faith in Jesus Christ and so this knowledge of God involves this ever-deepening relationship with him, intimacy, fellowship with him, and, and it's evidenced through love for him and obedience to what he says. We would express it this way. John's not just referring to head knowledge, but to heart knowledge. By this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. And right there is the litmus test that you can lay down in your life in terms of assurance. The word keep there, it's a word that means to attend to carefully. It's a present tense verb which indicates continual, regular obedience. 
He's not talking about sinless perfection here because we know that we stumble in the Christian life. We trip up. We know that we sin. The Spirit of God who's come to live within me lets me know when I've sinned against God. It grieves a Christian when a Christian sins because of the Spirit of God who's alive living in that believer. So John's not advocating for sinless perfection here, but he's talking about a consistent pattern of obedience. You can know for sure that you've come to know God if there's a consistent pattern of obedience in your life. If there's an inward desire to want to obey God's word, to want to serve God from the heart, this is a sign that you've come to know him. However, if you have no interest in doing what he says, if his word is of little importance to you, then that ought to be a major red flag in your life. You may know some things about him, but you don't know him personally. The third thing in this verse that John says we can know is that obedience to the commandments of God, this is the grounds for our assurance. So I can know God, I can know that I know God, and I know that obedience to the commandments of God, this is the grounds for my assurance. So John is saying in verse 3 that assurance is connected to our obedience. Notice I didn't say that security Eternal security is connected to my obedience. Now, this is where a lot of people get confused. Because there's a difference in assurance of your salvation versus eternal security. Eternal security, this is from God's point of view and God's perspective. Your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. Because the God who saved you is the God who's keeping you. You listening? The God who saved me is the God who's keeping me. That's an issue of eternal security. But assurance, however, assurance, this is from my point of view, my perspective. How can I live with confidence that I'm saved? How can I know for sure that I have been saved? Well, it's it's obedience. A regular, consistent pattern of obedience in my life. This is what John is saying. Obedience and assurance, these are connected. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we've prayed a prayer at some point, or if we've joined a church at some point, or if we can quote scripture. He's not reaching into the past and saying that we can know that we've come to know him if we've done something in the past. That's not to say that all of those things like praying and being involved in a church and memorizing and quoting scripture, all of those are involved in Christian obedience. But John is saying, by this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep, that is, if there's a present desire and a consistent pattern of obedience to his commandments. Present tense language. It's not reaching back into the past. Now, why is that important? A lot of people look back to something that they did in the past and, and, and they want that to be the grounds of their confidence. That's why a lot of people say, well, pastor, I'm just not so sure that I can remember the day when I got saved. Now, a lot of people have the testimony. They can remember the day. They can remember the time of day. They can remember the message that the preacher was preaching if it was on a Sunday. They can remember what they had for breakfast that morning. But for a lot of other people, that testimony is different, especially for those of us who came to faith in Jesus when we were children. Some says, well, I'm just not quite so sure that I can remember the exact day. I I know that I'm saved. 
And I would even say that remembering the day is very helpful, but that's not what John is ultimately pointing back to here in verse 3, is it? He's asking this question, is there a consistent pattern of obedience in your life presently? Why is this important? Because there are a lot of people, listen to me, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians. There are a lot of people who say that they're saved, yet they have absolute no desire to want to obey God's word, to be with God's people, to live for God's glory. It's been an eon ago since they, they've been in church, but now you ask them on the street, are you saved? Oh, yes, I was saved, because let me tell you, way back when, when I was little, I prayed a prayer. Never mind the fact that they live for themselves. Never mind the fact that they completely disregard God and his word. John is saying, if that's you, then you have every reason in the world to suspect your profession of faith, to hold it in suspect. The grounds for Christian obedience, men and women, if you want to live with assurance, this question, am I presently obeying the commands of Christ? Am I following him in discipleship? That's what John is saying here in verse 3. So obedience then, this is essential for our assurance. This is the obedience test. Now, notice the second thing here in verse 4. He says, obedience is evidence of redemption. It's evidence. It's not the pathway to redemption. It's evidence of it. You understand the difference? David Allen says it this way, obedience to the commands of Christ, this is not the avenue to salvation. In other words, it's not by works. I'm not saved because I'm doing this and I'm doing that. No, salvation is by grace through faith. However, if you've been genuinely born again, there's going to be an inward change in your life. Your life's going to be changed. And there's going to be evidence. There's going to be fruit. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So in John's day, keep in mind, he's dealing with this issue. There were false teachers who claimed to know God, but they were not living in obedience to his word. Gnostics who had crept in. They sounded like Christians. At first glance, they even looked like Christians, but the way in which they lived contradicted their claims. And so John wants his little spiritual children to not be duped by the counterfeits and become prey to their lies. Just because a person says he or she is a Christian does not mean they are. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, John says he's a liar and the truth is not in him. It's the same thing that he says back up in chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. You know, one of the, the ways that the enemy works against the church is through a counterfeit system of sowing tares among the wheat. In the Middle East, the tares that Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the wheat and the tares. But the tares in the Middle East. At first glance, they look so much like wheat. But upon closer examination, there's a fundamental difference. The tear has no real fruit. It's nothing but a weed. Wheat, however, has fruit. 
And so the enemy, if he can't destroy a church from the outside, he'll try to disrupt it from the inside. He's a master counterfeiter who wants to sabotage the witness of the local church. Sabotage. I read where in uh, the 19th century, 19th century France, disgruntled workers would develop, they developed this subversive tactic that involved throwing a leather shoe into a factory machinery that would cause it to grind to a halt, thereby ceasing productivity. The plant manager ticked off his employees. Those employees had this tactic. One could take off his leather shoe referred to in French as a sabot. He would take that, throw that into the machine, and man, it would just grind production down to a halt. And eventually, this act of subversion became known as sabotage. That's where the word sabotage came from. Sabot, it's a French word for a particular type of shoe that those factory workers would wear. Who would think just a simple shoe thrown into the gears could wreak such havoc on a factory's production line? Listen, in a similar way, what John writes here provides us with a clue as to how the enemy works to sabotage the local church. He wants people to buy into this idea of professing faith in Christ apart from practicing obedience to Christ. Let's make this disconnect then between faith and obedience. And we've reduced Christianity to nothing more than just a set of facts that I look at on printed page and I'll agree with those facts. No, listen to me. Genuine faith is you surrendering your life to Jesus Christ as Lord. When you come to him in faith, he changes you from the inside out. Doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. Yes, you'll still stumble and fall, but you're not going to want to because he changes you from the inside out. He puts his spirit within you. That's what John is saying in these verses. And so you had these false teachers who were confusing God's people in John's day. And John's saying, let me tell you something. Don't buy into what they're saying. Don't buy what they're selling. Because they're saying one thing, but they're living another. And what they're saying isn't true. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. John does not mince words. John says he's a liar and the truth is not in him. So obedience then, it's essential for assurance. It's evidence of redemption. And then notice one third thing, verses five and six. Ultimately, it's expressed through abiding in Christ. Look at verse five. John says, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Love of God. What's this referring to here? Well, this is, this is your love for God. Context shows that to be the case. The idea is if a man or a woman loves God, then he or she will seek to please him by obeying his commandments. The idea is that love for the Lord is expressed through obedience to the Lord. And that word perfected means brought to maturity. And John is saying that your love is mature when you love God and your love for him is the basis for how you live your life. 
Mature obedience in the Christian life, it flows out of a heart that loves God. It sees obedience not as mere duty to be reluctantly met, but as sheer delight because love is the motive. Motive is important. What's motive? Well, motive gets to the issue behind why a person does what they do, right? David Allen says it this way, some people do things because they have to. Some people do things because they need to. Some people do things because they want to. A slave serves because he has to. A child at home obeys because he needs to. There are consequences if he doesn't obey. An adult goes to work on time because he needs to. He needs a paycheck. He may not want to, but in order to get the paycheck, he needs to. He's got to follow the rules of the office. And he does that because he needs to. But the point is, none of these is a mature reason for obedience. Because John is saying here that mature obedience flows out of love. Why do I love God? Why do I obey God? Because I want to. Because he's changed my wanter. Are you listening? He's changed my want-tos. His spirit has come to take up residence within my heart and my life. And so mature obedience, John's saying it's expressed through love for God. Why do you do what you do for God? Is it because you feel like you have to? Is it because you reluctantly realize, well, this is my duty? Or is it because you are so deeply appreciative of the grace of God that you've experienced in your life, and so you're singing, and you're giving, and you're serving, and you're belonging to a family of faith? This is flowing out of the love that you have in your heart for the Lord God. Guess what John is referring to here. And ultimately, it's expressed through abiding in Christ. That word abide is one of John's favorite words. He uses it 22 times in 1 John. He uses it approximately 40 times in the Gospel of John. Read John 15. He talks about abiding in Christ. As the branches remain in the vine... But he says, whoever says that he abides in him, that is Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John is saying here, look, the obedience test. What's it look like practically as it's fleshed out in your life? Evidence that you're abiding in Christ will mean that you are walking the same pathway that he walked. My life will increasingly look like his life. That flows out of my union with Christ, right? But ultimately, I'm looking to Christ as my perfect example. Who are you patterning your life after? We'll say, well, this Christian that I really respect, that's all real and good. Let me tell you, that person isn't perfect. What about Jesus? He's perfect in every way, isn't he? The one who abides in him, John says he will walk the same way in which he walked. Let's stand for prayer this morning. The litmus test of obedience. Obedience. So important as it's connected to assurance in your life. And you know something, assurance that you're saved, this is one of the greatest provisions that you have been given. And honestly, it prepares you to face life's troubles. 
Assurance enables you to walk through the trials of life with a sense of confidence. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8. He says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, height, depth, any created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. That's assurance, isn't it? That's some confidence. And you say, well, pastor, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, that obedience is the grounds for assurance. But, you know, let me tell you, I've failed. I've failed. And, you know, God doesn't want you to live with that heavy cloud of guilt because of your failure. Again, keep in mind what John has already said. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ the righteous. But the point is, is those who've come to know him, who trust him, we're constantly looking to him. And every day I've got to consciously say, you know what? I've got to die to myself and that old sin nature. And I look to Jesus Christ, realizing who I am in Jesus Christ. And as I look to him and I understand grace, he is the one who enables me and empowers me to obey his word. It's a supernatural life, isn't it? It was Fanny Crosby, I think, who said it best. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for just the direct way that the Apostle John inspired by your spirit, so communicates to us as believers. Lord, we need to live with assurance. And you've made every provision that's necessary for us to walk in that assurance. But we need to ask ourselves some questions today. Am I presently obeying? Is there anything in my life right now, Lord, that I need to confess, that I need to surrender to you and your lordship? I pray, Lord, that you would show us those things as you continue to conform us as believers into the image of your son. Any person who's never been saved this morning, Lord, Lord God, may today they come to know Jesus in a personal, real way through faith. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.